Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series titled Elijah. We're learning about an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. Thanks for joining us today. Man, it's good to be with uh, you all, the people of God this morning. Uh, My name is Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry. And we're stepping back into a teaching series today that we've been in for the past several weeks on the prophet Elijah. So if you're following at the top of your notes, this is something we've been saying each and every week. Elijah was an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. So that's what we've been walking through each week in the series, and we're going to continue to look at his story today. When I was a, uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, some of the upperclassmen on the soccer team that I was on at my school, they decided that it would be beneficial for the team if a bunch of us went out for the cross-country team to get in shape for the coming soccer season, because cross-country uh, in Orlando was the season right before soccer. So we thought, okay, we'll, we'll go out and we'll, we'll get in really good shape for this. Um, I didn't really want to run cross-country, uh, but I really wanted to fit in with the older guys in the soccer team. So I said, okay, I'm in, sign me up for cross-country. Uh, now in soccer, you, you run quite a bit in, in training, right? So I, I considered myself a runner. My mentality was, I, I am already a runner. This will not be a huge adjustment for me. I was wrong about that, right? That was not the case. Uh, totally different level of expectation. I quickly realized, oh, I am not a runner uh, by cross-country definitions and, and standards. And so what happened was, as I realized the level of commitment, investment, and expectation that was placed on me, I was like, okay, maybe I need to reevaluate my own uh, priorities and and commitment to this. How all in am I going to be for cross country? And and so I had what I would call a crossroads moment. And this was a a daily thing at practice and at races, these crossroads moments. What I mean by that is a crossroad moment would be, uh, I can either choose to give all of myself to this, to do my, my very best, give my best effort, and hey, maybe I'll be, you know, puking my guts out at the end of this, but I'm going to give my best effort. Or on the flip side, I could you know, just show up and I could go through the motions and I could kind of finish the races and do my thing and just be on the team and wear the uniform, but not like really you know, be, be all in for this. That was the crossroads that I found myself at each and every race and practice. And there was kind of a literal uh, crossroads for me uh, on our, our training path at, at school grounds because there was a concession stand by the baseball stadium and our, our route would typically take us by the baseball stadium. And so I discovered very early on that with a slight detour off the path at this kind of fork in the roads, I could just veer a bit to the right and find myself at the water fountain outside the concession stand with the little shaded awning. And I could lie down on the countertop at the concession stand. I thought, this is a good thing. This is what cross country has been missing. (laughs) So so that was what I would do. And, And it was this crossroads like, okay, I can either keep running or I can stop here for 90 seconds, check my watch. Okay, it's been a minute or two. You know, my cross-country coach, she'll think I'm slow, but it's not that big of a deal. I don't care about being fast. I'll just, and I get to, you know, pretend that I'm really with it like the rest of the guys in the team are, right? I get to wear the jersey and be a part of this, but I'm really a cross-country runner in, in name only, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not really, like all the other guys, they're, they're all in. They're diving headfirst into the waters, and I'm sort of just dipping my, dipping my toe in there. Like, I want to be in, but I don't really want what they want, Right? I'm like halfway committed to this thing, halfway involved in the cross-country team, wearing the same uniform, wearing the same jersey, but not really about the same kind of commitment and depth and investment and experience, not giving myself wholeheartedly to this. 
And those crossroad moments are things that we can experience in our spiritual lives as well. The story that we're gonna look at today is a story about a crossroads moment for Israel. It's where Elijah wants to catalyze, to start, to energize a renewal movement in God's people. So if you're following your notes, Elijah is sent by God to put before the people two paths, two paths. There's the path of half-hearted worship and the path of wholehearted worship. Half-hearted worship being divided loyalty, fragmented allegiance. I'm a little bit in, but I'm not all the way in. I wanna be a devoted follower of God, of Yahweh, but not so much that I'm, I'm too radical or people think I'm weird or I have to sacrifice too much, right? Wholehearted worship being the all in, fully devoted mentality. And the invitation that's given to Israel by Elijah in the story that we're gonna look at is the same one that God extends to you and I today in our own lives. So would you open the scriptures with me to 1 Kings chapter 18? 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings is the book that we've been walking through for the past several books, one of the historical books of the Old Testament that contains, at least in part, some of the stories of Elijah the prophet. So 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm gonna start with us in verse one, and we've got a lot to work through, so hang in there with me today. But we're gonna kick this off just to set the scene in verse one of 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to King Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, remember here that Israel has been in a, a severe drought for the past three years as a judgment uh, for their idolatry uh, Yahweh, that Yahweh has sent to them, right? Yahweh has said to them, okay, you wanna worship the Canaanite gods, you wanna follow after Baal. Baal's the storm god, he's the one, like rain is his thing, right? Bringing fertility produce from the ground, from the earth, that's his deal. So if you wanna follow after Baal, here's what, here's what three years of Baal in charge looks like. That's essentially uh, the implicit, the, the subtext of Elijah's message in the past three years. You trust Baal for rain, here's three years of that. So that's the judgment to the drought that they've been under. And some of you will know this to be true in your own spiritual lives. And this is the point that Elijah is trying to drive home for Ahab and for the people of God. And this is in your notes. Sometimes the worst thing for me is getting what I thought I wanted. Sometimes the worst thing for me is getting what I thought I wanted. This seemed like the good thing. This seemed like the right path. But when I really have that, can it fulfill all its promises to me? Can it uphold the weight of my worship without destroying me? That's what the people need to discover. So Elijah's coming to Ahab and he wants to drive home the point three years into this drought. Now it's a long passage, like I said, so for time's sake, I'm gonna skip a few verses here and there, uh, which set up the rest of the story. But one thing that's important to note is verse four, which begins this way. While Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, the queen, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, killing off the Lord's prophets, okay? I want you to just keep that in mind because the story that, that we're gonna unfold today has a bit of a violent ending to it. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. But at least one context clue that I want us to keep in mind is that Elijah is a, a fugitive. He is public enemy number one. He is Israel's most wanted, right? Jezebel has been running a hit squad on uh, the prophets of Yahweh, right? Uh, trying to exterminate them. So Elijah has been running, fearing for his life. And so within the context of this story, he's not somebody who can just make an easy appearance. He doesn't have the right to just go before Ahab. This is a dangerous situation for him. 
So he arranges a meeting with Ahab through his friend, Obadiah. Obadiah is an inside man, so to speak. Obadiah works in the palace. He's somebody who's close to King Ahab. Uh, And yet unknown to Ahab, Obadiah is actually a servant of Yahweh. And the irony of that is it's driven home in the story by his name. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. But that's not something that Ahab is picking up on, that his actual allegiance is to the true God and not to the king and Baal. Uh, So through Obadiah, Elijah sets this meeting with King Ahab. Obadiah is the double agent in the story. So picking up in verse 16, in verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he, that's Ahab, said to him, here's this question, is that you, you troubler of Israel? You troubler of Israel. So an accusation has been made, right? Ahab is is pointing the finger in Elijah's direction. And he's saying, hey, look, we've been in this drought for three years. That's your fault. You're creating all these problems. If you would just go away, if you would just be silent, then we could just live our lives in peace. You're stirring the pot here and you don't need to. This is what prophets, artists are really good at. They stir the pot, right? They rattle the fence. This is, what, um, this is what Elijah has been doing. And yet the problem is not Elijah's fault, right? So here's the counterclaim, the counter narrative to what's been put forward by Ahab. In verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. Why? You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. So there's the counter narrative, right? Ahab says Elijah is the troubler of Israel, and Elijah says Ahab is the troubler of Israel. So you're about to see in this story a kind of courtroom drama, and it's not going to take place in the normal way, right, with a, you know, a judge behind a bench and a jury and all that. This is going to be one of the more dramatic courtroom dramas in the biblical text, right? And there's really two interrelated questions that are being tested in the events which are about to follow here. On the one hand, there's this, this question. On the one level, there's this question, who is really God? Is it Yahweh, right? Is it the Hebrew God or is it, is it Baal, the, the Canaanite God, the Canaanite idol? Is it Yahweh or Baal? And the answer to that question will resolve this secondary question of who really is then the troubler of Israel. Is it Elijah or is it Ahab? If you're following in your notes, if Baal wins the contest that's about to happen, if Baal wins, then Elijah is the troubler of Israel and Ahab is vindicated. But if Yahweh wins, then Ahab is the troubler of Israel and Elijah is vindicated. So this is a contest, not just of power, it's a contest of truth, right? This is what Elijah wants to do. He's been sent by God to surface the truth for the people and force them to a point of decision, of resolute action on the basis of that truth. See the truth, live in the truth. That's what he wants. So verse 19, Elijah issues the challenge. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. There's some subtext that eat at Jezebel's table. That's a dig, right? It means on the payroll. He's calling into question their credibility, their integrity as prophets, right? So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, would you read this aloud on screen with me? It's also in the gray box on your notes. Elijah went before the people and said, 
How long will you waver between two opinions? That is the question. That's the question of the whole story. It's a question of our lives. And this question is actually in Hebrew, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. Literally, Elijah is asking them, how long will you limp between crutches? Or another translation could be, how long will you linger at the crossroads? In other words, he's saying to them, you guys are immobile. You're not moving with purpose. You're not running after God. You're doing something half-heartedly, right? You're giving yourself a little bit to Yahweh and a little bit to Baal, and you're sitting on the fence, the most comfortable seat in the house. Don't we know it? And so Elijah's like, hey, I want to rattle this fence for you. You were sitting at the crossroads. And he finishes in verse 21 and says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. It's simple, right? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. They got no response for Elijah, which is a perfect characterization of their posture, their mentality in the whole story. They're an indecisive people, right? If y'all know Hamilton, they're, they're Aaron Burr, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit here and see which way the wind will blow, right? I'm not gonna you know, speak my mind and say, here's what I'm for. Here's what I'm against. Here's where I'm at. I'm gonna stand my ground here. That's not who they are. So they've got no response for Elijah and Elijah wants to force an encounter with reality. This is an intervention, right? Biblical style intervention right here. He's trying to light a fire under them and compel them to wholehearted response. See the truth, live in the truth. The Lord is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, friends, in our context, give him your time. If the Lord is God, give him your kids. If the Lord is God, give him your work, give him your marriage. Give him everything that you have and all that you are. Give him all of yourself, your worship, relationships, all of it. Pastor Matt Chandler down in Texas, he says that uh, worship is a terrible hobby, right? Christianity, church, it's a terrible hobby. If you're a hobbyist, when it comes to following Jesus, trust me, there is a lot else you could be doing. Do you you know, you could be home right now sleeping, Right? You, could be, you could be home right now playing video games. You could be home right now practicing roller derby. You could be collecting postage stamps and baseball cards, building model airplanes. You got lots of other hobbies available to you. So if church, if worship, if following Jesus is something we're doing at the level of a hobbyist, we are missing out on the fullness that God has extended to us in himself, in Jesus, in the way of life that he offers to us. I don't mean to be lighthearted about hobbies or anything, but I hope I'm just surfacing some of the silliness in a half-hearted discipleship to Jesus. Those of you who who wear the badge of Christian, who've been baptized in those waters, I would just ask you, were you half-baptized? And why would we half-follow Jesus? Were you not buried with him in death and raised with him to share in his new life? What would it look like for you to step fully into the identity that you have received as a child of God, as a partaker in the salvation that Jesus has offered to you? How could you live and remember your baptism? I think part of the reason that we, like Israel, uh, limp between crutches, the way we linger at the crossroads, part of the reason we do that is because we are syncretic. And syncretic is a term I want to define for us. So if you're following your notes, syncretism, it's the blending of different beliefs and values into a single incoherent worldview. It's like mutt religion. 
It's kind of like, uh, you know, in Israel's context, taking the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal and throwing it into a blender and just consuming whatever comes out. See, a lot of us, we, we think that Israel's problem is that they just outright reject Yahweh. That's actually not the case. If you, if you read most of the prophets, almost every time, the critique is not that they have outright rejected and abandoned the worship of Yahweh, it's that they have tried to combine the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. And they think that these two things can coexist in the same plane of reality. They think that, that the truth here is equal, that it doesn't really matter which one you go for, right? And, and so they've tried to combine. That is syncretism. That's what it means to, to combine worldviews that don't actually cohere. They're, they're inconsistent. They don't go together, but we try to blend them as if they do. And so we end up living this way that doesn't make a lot of sense. We're partially committed, we're partially uncommitted. We believe something that's true. We believe something that's false. And we just live the way that we want to, a sort of customized religious experience. That's what Israel is doing. Ahab himself is doing this. You know that Ahab has two sons and they're both named after Yahweh. It's ironic because of the role that he plays in the story. But Ahab is somebody who doesn't see a problem. He doesn't see the inconsistency between having kids named after Yahweh and, and being a worshiper of Yahweh and being Yahweh's king and at the same time being a worshiper of Baal. He doesn't see the tension that is naturally in that, uh, that, that marriage of two, um, of two ideologies, right? They're inconsistent, but he doesn't see it. And this is precisely what makes Elijah the most unpopular guy in the country because he, he has the audacity to believe that truth is exclusive that you should be consistent and coherent in what you believe and live that out fully to take a stand for what's true, right? In your notes, Elijah proclaims that Yahweh and Baal are contradictory and not complementary. He says, these things, they don't go. They don't fit. They don't match. We have to choose here. We can't have it both ways. We can't sit on the fence Indecision is the wrong decision. And in fact, indecision is a form of decision. So we have to be committed to a sensible worship of one God here. Now, it would be easy for us, modern people, to imagine that this is you know, syncretism, that that's a problem for the ancient world, that people in polytheistic cultures, you know, where they're used to having a pantheon of gods, that, you know, that, that syncretism is probably something I can understand them having an issue with, but for us moderns, no problem with it. Right? But I got to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. We live in a, in a pluralistic society, religiously pluralistic. And what I mean by that is that we have uh, a sort of menu, a, a buffet of religious options open to us, don't we? And it's good in the sense that, hey, we, we're all fans of religious freedom. We, we believe in that, and that's a good thing. But there's also a, a dark side to religious pluralism, and that sometimes we, we go to that religious buffet and we take a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here, a little bit from here. We got this, you know, customized plate of spirituality that's really unique to us as individuals. And we haven't actually bought into a coherent, consistent way of looking at the world. We haven't actually submitted ourselves to the truth claims of a spiritual tradition, Right? Instead, we've taken it, you know, DIY, tailor-fit spirituality. And this is why in our culture, you hear things like all religions basically teach the same things. You know, we're all just kind of ascending the mountain together and we'll all arrive at the top and 
you know, we'll all get, get there eventually. We're just coming at it from different paths, right? You hear that language in our culture today. That's syncretism. And syncretism, by the way, is a problem both for political and theological conservatives as well as progressives. This isn't a problem for just the other side. Many progressive Christians incorporate new age spirituality into their Christian worldview, their Christian way of life. This is why a lot of Christians, we affirm things like karma and, and you know, astrology and zodiac signs and a, a radical bodily autonomy, right? That's syncretism. And at the same time, there's many conservative Christians who practice a form of American civil religion where we confuse uh, militaristic nationalism with the way of Jesus. We blend it with our Christian faith. And I don't mean to step on toes. I'm just trying to rattle the fence a little bit here that we maybe have been sitting on and examine our own beliefs and our own values and priorities and commitments and get us to wonder if perhaps we need to renew our commitment wholeheartedly to the teaching and the way of Jesus in the world. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who uh, wrote a big old book called A Secular Age uh, years ago. And he talks about this uh, anxiety producing mix, this blend of spiritual ideas. He calls it cross pressure, cross pressure. If you're following your notes, cross pressure is the experience of being torn between imminence and transcendence. Let me, let me explain some of that. When he talks about being torn between imminence and transcendence, imminence would mean uh, the idea or the feeling that this world is all there is. We live in what he calls the imminent frame, this, this box of reality where, you know, supernatural and miraculous and the divine presence and word, we don't really have contact with that if it exists. And so the world around us seems so um, chaotic and yet ordinary and mundane. And can we really, really believe that there is some supernatural, invisible, all-powerful being who's active in the world? Can we really believe that? And so we live as if the world is, is material and physical only. That's imminence. We're torn between that and transcendence. Transcendence being we're just haunted by <laughs> We feel the echoes of the supernatural, God's presence and word in the world around us. We have this sense that no matter how chaotic the world seems at times or how monotonous our day-to-day -day life is, that there's a story going on here, that we're a part of something, that there is a God who speaks to us, who invades our human reality, who initiates and who moves among us that we didn't just come from nothing and explode into everything that's chaotic and yet somehow ordered and is gonna dissolve into nothing. No, 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 we have a story at work that makes sense of reality. And we're living into that because God has revealed himself to us. That's transcendence. And we feel the tug between some of these two things. On the one hand, it feels like, you know, maybe this is all there is. Do I really wanna give myself to this God I can't see? And on the other hand, there's this part of me that just, I can't let go of the fact that there's a story in the world and that God loves me and he, he's spoken into my life and into our world. And I've, I've got to live in faith to allow transcendence to break into my imminent world. And because we feel this tension, because we live in a world of limitless religious options, we feel torn in different directions. It makes it hard for us to commit. It makes it hard for us to be wholehearted followers of God makes us hard to get out of that box of partial allegiance, right? Compartmentalized, incoherent, individualistic forms of spirituality 
and step fully into all that God has for us to be consistent and committed followers of God. Now, here's the thing about syncretism. Some of us do this consciously. We don't have any problem mixing and matching. But all of us do this unconsciously. Unless you, you, you see the world perfectly and exactly the way that God sees it. And if you live always in the reality of God's word and world, then you have at least some part of you that's syncretic. Some part of you that has an allegiance, a divided loyalty to the things of this world and to the things of God. That's true for all of us. And so Elijah's question is as incisive then as it is now. How long will you linger at the crossroads? Elijah speaks again to the people and he gives instructions. He has the 450 prophets of Baal build an altar and they prepare a bull for sacrifice. So let's pick up about halfway through verse 26. Halfway through verse 26. This is the prophets of Baal here. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And so they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. And no one paid attention. You know, there are a lot of gods out there in the marketplace of ideas today. We can worship the God of our kids' success. We can worship the God of financial security. We can worship the God of personal convenience and comfort and pleasure. We can, we can always choose to give our allegiance to some idol, the idol of our bodies or performance or belonging, whatever it is. And I would just ask you, if you look at your life, not what you say that you believe, not what you say that you value, but the actual way that you live, is it possible that you could detect some idols that exist within your heart, that exist within your soul, that control your values, priorities, commitments, the way you see what's real and what's true? I think we would maybe find some false gods in there. And here's, here's what I know about false gods. They all demand blood. They want you to sing and dance for them. Every one of them, right? They're gonna ask something of you. If you perform for me, I'll satisfy what you want, right? In your notes, the rule of every false god is if you do enough, you'll be accepted. If you do enough, you'll be good. You'll have your needs met, your wants fulfilled. If you just do enough, just dance for me a little bit, bleed for me a little bit. In extreme cases in our lives, when we give ourselves to these false gods, when we run after things that maybe even are good things like belonging and significance, but we make them ultimate things. We turn good things into God things, right? That's idolatry. When we run after and give ourselves to them in extreme cases, that does harm not just to our spiritual lives, but as in the prophets of Baal, to maybe even our emotional and mental health and our physical well-being. right? These things can be destructive in our lives. If you worship the God of self-fulfillment and pleasure, don't be surprised 
when you're unfaithful in your marriage. If you worship the God of success and achievement, don't be surprised when you're exhausted and burnt out as a workaholic in your job. If you worship the God of acceptance and popularity, don't be surprised when your anxiety is crippling and leads you into self-harm. If you worship the God of convenience and comfort, don't be surprised when you feel unfulfilled and lost and purposeless in your life because you're always walking the path of least resistance. Here's what I want us to see. This is in your notes. Half-hearted worship, it offers what you really want, but it comes with a cost. Wholehearted worship, it looks costly, but it offers what you really, truly need. Half-hearted worship, it seems like the easiest path, but it will not get you where you really want to be. It will not take you to the place of fullness and abundance that God has in store for you. Now, after the prophets of Baal have had their turn, Elijah rebuilds the altar of the Lord, which had been in disrepair. And he prepares the sacrifice, but then he soaks the whole altar in water so that it fills a trench around the altar. And he's about to demonstrate something here. And this is important for us. If your vision of Christianity is uh, performative obedience for divine acceptance, you've never really understood the gospel because that's, that's Baal stuff, right? That's not Yahweh. With Baal, we have to perform to belong, but in the gospel, we are accepted apart from what we do. Baal is bloodthirsty. God is blood giving, blood offering, blood shedding for you. And this is what is gonna be seen as a manifestation of the gospel in the closing verses of this text. In verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and it burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil. And it also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God. Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. When the fire falls, we know the truth. There can be no more hiding it, no more running from it, no more distracting ourselves from it, no more sticking our head in the sand, right? We know the truth. Who is the real troubler of Israel? It's Ahab, not Elijah. Who is the real God? It's Yahweh and not Baal. And that truth today as then demands response. If I'm driving down the interstate and I realize I'm going the wrong direction, I don't keep going. I turn around, I go the other way, right? Look, if God is who he says he is, if he's done what we say he's done, then the most irrational thing we could do is to keep living as if that weren't true. The most irrational way we could live is in half-hearted worship, half-hearted trust, half-hearted obedience, half-hearted surrender. Instead, we would give all of ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. 
So we have to face ourselves the question, how long will we linger at the crossroads? Now, friends, I don't want us to misunderstand what I believe God is calling us into today. The response that's required of us is not more striving to get a response from God. No, 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 no. No, God has already spoken. God has already acted. He initiates. We simply just have to come in faith and receive the grace that he extends to us to abide in him. That is our response. Friends, if you want to experience renewal in your spiritual life, you don't need me to come and inspire you, to spur you on for another week of, of you know, radical obedience to Jesus. And you'll come back next week and somebody else will spur you on to another week of it. No, no, you don't need me to externally fire you up and inspire you. You don't need to move on from the gospel and into striving. You just need more of the gospel, right? We don't move on from the gospel. We move deeper and further into the gospel. And as we encounter the living love of God in Christ Jesus, and we realize all that he is and all that he has done for us, the love of God in Christ purges the idols from our hearts, from our lives, and we experience God's renewal by grace through faith. That's the gospel. And that is why Christ is in the heart of this story. Do you see him there? Jesus is the true and the better Elijah. He's God's mediator and representative who exposes our idols and turns our hearts back to God. Jesus is also the true and the better sacrifice who demonstrates God's love for us so that we know that God is not bloodthirsty and demanding from us, but he is blood giving and blood offering to us. So the question again, we have to ask ourselves is, if that's true, that's who God is, is that God worthy of my wholehearted worship? Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.